Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, the Old Testament. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you, we're on page 297, the last chapter of the first book of Chronicles. We're continuing our consideration of stewardship as we're really making that an emphasis this, much, this month. Appreciate so much the, the generosity of our Tri-City Baptist Church family. Last week we looked at the foundation of stewardship that really begins with a surrendered life. I want us to focus this morning on the stewardship for the glory of God. And how do we glorify God when things don't necessarily go as we would like? I mean, how do you handle the disappointments that come in life? You know, we all experience them. Some disappointments are rather insignificant. You know, our favorite ice cream isn't on sale. The restaurant's out of our, the dish that we ordered. You know, you're, you don't get the grade that you wanted on a, a test. Your team didn't get the field goal in the final seconds of the game. The weather doesn't cooperate with your plants. I mean, we, we experience those and they're frustrations, but they're minor disappointments. But other disappointments are are significant setbacks. They bring major distress into our lives. They may derail our life and and upset us both physically and emotionally, maybe even spiritually. The goals that we have or, or things that don't happen, a job promotion that you've worked for, you've planned for, you've invested in, and and then it doesn't come through. Or maybe it's the person you thought would be your partner for life, you were sure, and then all of a sudden that engagement is broken. Or a doctor enters the the room with a grim look on his face and shares test results that you had dreaded and hoped would not happen. You had prayed that it wouldn't go that way. And how do you respond when your world is shaken? When when you've had goals and dreams and hopes and, and those don't come to fruition? How do, you, how do you handle that, that struggle to regain your equilibrium? Do you get angry? Frustrated? Throw up your hands in despair? Do you shut down and just really withdraw from life? Do you try to maneuver or finagle, say, well, what can I do to, to change the outcome of this? Do you get bitter at what you can't change and just really say, then, I'm quitting on God? Or do you throw in the towel? Or do you recognize that God is in control? And while this would not be our desire, while we would truly want something different and it doesn't change the devastation that we can cast our cares upon Him, that He is at work in spite of the disappointment, in spite of those trials, the apparent disaster that God is working, that He was not caught off guard. And then when you know him personally, he has promised that, that all things really do work together for good. For his glory and for our good, which is to bring us to be like Christ. And I, and I lay that out and we know the right answer intellectually. 
but how do we actually respond? You know, there was a man that had a heart for God. He, desi- he desired to serve the Lord, and, he, and he, de- he set a goal. He had a plan, a major endeavor that, that he knew would honor the Lord. And when he shared this idea with one of his key spiritual advisors, his mentor told him, that's a great idea, go ahead with what you want to do. Yet a short time later, that advisor comes back to him and says, you know, I was a little premature in giving the go-ahead. You can't go forward with that project. He had his heart set on it. How would he respond? Well, that's what we find here in 1 Chronicles 29. Here we find David a man after God's own heart, the the king of Israel at the end of his life. And earlier in his life, he had had gotten excited when the Ark of the Covenant, the, the physical manifestation of the presence of God, was brought back to Jerusalem. He was, he was thrilled that that had happened. And, 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 and we find that back in chapters 15 and 16 of, of First Chronicles. And in the course of this, it's really one of the highlights of his administration is his 40-year reign as king. And he, he looks around, he says, you know, I live in this beautiful house. And the Ark of the Covenant is, is dwelling in a tent, the tabernacle. And he said, you know, I, I need to build a house. A house for God. A house that will, will hold the, the ark, a temple. And God, through the prophet Nathan, says, no, you can't do it. But David's son Solomon will build it. So how did David respond? Well, instead of getting angry and frustrated, bitter or quitting, David commits himself to the, the, do everything he can to help in the preparation to facilitate the undertaking that his son will do. His commitment honored the Lord, and really as we look at it, it, it encourages us today because of David's faithfulness. Here we find the culmination of David's response when God said no. When God tells David, you can't do what you want, and we, we find here in 1 Chronicles 29 the, the last recorded words of King David. The, it's really a benediction, so to speak, that is recorded here. And I want us to consider this chapter this morning. We're not going to read all of it, but I want us to overview it because what we really see that heart for God. But I want us to read the first nine verses. Follow with me as I begin reading in 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 1. 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 1. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now, for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might gold for the things to be made of gold, silver for the things of silver, bronze for the things of bronze, iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, 
and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of the craftsmen. Who then will, is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of the thousands, the captains of the hundreds, and with the officers over the king's work offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of, of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 decors, coins of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly. Let's look to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we have read your word, we would not simply be hearers, but we would apply it to our lives, that we would direct our focus to you, that in all that we do, that we would live for your honor and glory, and in doing so, encourage others to walk close to you as well. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. What I want us to see from this passage and this chapter this morning is that your personal adoration for God will cause you to give for His glory, and then in doing so, you will be encouraging others to serve Him faithfully as well. That's what we find from David's example and really is laid out in this passage. The first thing that we see, though, is that we must be willing to surrender our personal ambitions to the will of God. As I mentioned, David had had a desire. He wanted to, to build this, this temple, this house, and he begins by reminding the people that, that his son Solomon is the one that God has chosen. Solomon's young. Solomon doesn't have the, the experience. He hasn't been in leadership yet. And this is a, a significant undertaking. And David says it's because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord. God chose Solomon. David recognized that the work was, was not about people but it's about God. And the first thing that we need to understand from this is because the work is for the Lord, you must give God control of your agenda. Are we willing to bring our plans, our goals, our ambitions, and put all on the altar? You know, I, I mentioned that David was delighted when the, the covenant, Ark of the Covenant returned to Jerusalem, and, and it was then that he reflected on where he was living and, and the tent, the tabernacle where the Ark was, and, and he wanted to do something about it. He says that the, the ark was under a tent of curtains back in chapter 17, verse 1. In fact, chapter 17 is really where this is, this is taking place. And one of the things that I, I, I was struck with in considering this was, you know, things are going well for David at this point. And he's still thinking about the Lord. Isn't it often the case that when things are going well, we kind of think, okay, I've got it under control. We go into autopilot. But it was at that time that David said, you know, things are going well for me. I have this beautiful home. I need to be doing something for the Lord. It's easy to think about the Lord when, when trials come, when our world crashes in, when those, those disappointments come, and then we pray fervently. But David has his eyes on the Lord in the good times. 
And I think it provides an example of why Scripture tells us that, that David was a man after God's own heart. And his goal was a noble goal. And when he presents the idea to, to Nathan the prophet, Nathan's initial reaction in, in chapter 17, verse 2 is, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. This wasn't, this wasn't something that he should be cautioned, don't do it. But that night, the word of God comes to Nathan and directs him to tell David that he cannot build the house of the Lord. And that's really chapter 17, verses 3 through 14, as, as the Lord speaks to, to Nathan at night and, and lays out why David is not the man to do this. You know, I wonder how that conversation went when the next morning Nathan gets up and has to go back to David. You know, it, if you've ever given somebody permission and then you've had to back it off, that's just, that's just not fun. And, and here's Nathan coming to David and saying, uh, you know that discussion we had yesterday about uh, building a house for the Lord? You haven't found an architect yet, have you? You didn't, you didn't appoint a general contractor, did you? Uh, you need to hold off. I was a little premature in the permitting process of this event. Your request has been turned down. And I'm thinking, David, who would turn this down? God. So how does David respond when God says no? Well, he really responded the way we need to respond. And if you've ever experienced God shutting the door on your plans and your desires, has this been your response of responding with humility? When God says no, and I don't know about you, but I often try to say, well, wait a minute, what about this? What about that? Can I? And, and yet, David accepts that. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't claim it's unfair. Instead, he reflects upon God's mercy. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 4, it says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. And then later on in that same chapter, we see David's response. It's a heart of humility. And David, the king, the king David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He's, he responds in a heart of humility rather than saying, Wait a minute, I want to serve God and he won't let me. Well, then forget it. No, David is going to work at developing plans. He's going to do everything he can to get the materials together. He is going to have all the pieces in place so that when Solomon becomes the king, everything is ready to go. When God closes the door for you, are you content to serve where you are? Or are you always looking for something else? Something bigger, something better, something different? You know, I've known pastors like that. That they're never satisfied. It's got to be something different. But that's the tendency we all can have. Now, if God opens the door, that's wonderful. And if it's motivated, but if it's motivated by a spirit of discontent, that's a problem. As we read in 1 Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. And God says no to David. Why? Why does God not let David do this? Well, there's actually two reasons given in Scripture. The first was David was busy with battles. In 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3, it says, You know how my father David could not build the house for, for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him. On every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. 
David was occupied with the security of the nation. Saul had been occupied with trying to kill David. And and unfortunately, that didn't keep the enemies of Israel at bay. And so now David has become the king, and he's been busy with battles. And so he couldn't do it. But there's also another reason. David was a man of bloodshed. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, just across the page or over a page, in verse 3 it says, But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. And we see here that, that he's not able to do it, and yet, yet David accepted God's plan for his life. You know, it's, it's interesting because David had some things in his past that kept him from doing what he wanted to do for the Lord. But it didn't keep him from serving the Lord. You know, when I, when I read this verse, and Scripture does not expand upon it, but I, I wonder if, if maybe the murder of Uriah the Hittite was alluded to in this. But whether it was David's sin or not, his involvement in battle, his bloodshed, precluded him from doing what he desired to do for God. God said no. He said, David, there's some things in your life that you're not able to do this. But while his past altered David's plans, it did not prohibit his present service. And what we need to understand is when God says no, God's no comes with God's grace. Don't allow something in your past to keep you from serving God in the present. God has a plan for you today. Now, there are times that past sin will regulate where and how you may be able to serve, but it will never prevent you from serving the Lord. Say, but you don't know what I did. That may be true, but I know what Christ did to deal with what you did. Christ died taking your wrong so that you could receive His righteousness. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. And God's no is actually softened by His grace. In fact, if you read chapter 17, and we're not taking time to turn there this morning and look at it, what we find is when, when God says no, He redirects the focus. In David's case, God says no to David's building the temple. The explanation is the Ark of the Covenant has never been in a home like that. It's always been in the tent, the the tabernacle, the representation of God's presence there. But after that historical understanding of the dwelling place of the Ark, then the attention shifts. God recounts David's humble beginnings. And how God had taken him from watching sheep to being the ruler of Israel. He talks about how he had used David to destroy, to defeat the enemies of Israel. To bring about that security in those battles. And then in in chapter 17, verse 10, it says, And furthermore, I tell you, the Lord will build you a house. David says, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan comes to him and says, no, God's going to build a house for you. And it means a royal dynasty. So it's not going to be a physical building, but God is going to be working for David. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 27, we read an angel, the angel Gabriel, goes to the city of Galilee, to the, or, or to the city in, in Galilee named Nazareth. 
he goes to a virgin named Mary and who's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. In Luke chapter 2, verse 4, David travels to the city of David, Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. That is the grace of God. David says, God, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, I'm building a house for you. It's going to be a dynasty. You are going to, you are going to be in the line of the Messiah. That is the marvelous grace of God that when he says no to David's plan, the Lord has a much greater plan. It's much farther reaching. Even Solomon's temple, as great as it was, is not in existence today. But David's house remains. The Messiah would come of the house and lineage of David. How's that for house building? Understanding when God says no, it comes with His grace. Second thing I want us to see, though, is that we need to be committed to personally advancing the work of God. Not only do we need to surrender our agenda to Him, we need to be committed to see His work go forward. And we see that really in verses 2 through 9 of this passage. But it says, Moreover, I have set my affection on the house of my God. I have given to the house of my God over and above what I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure. As I've mentioned, David's at the end of his life. He's now calling the leaders of Israel together. He's encouraging them to be helpful advisors, to come beside Solomon and help him in his leadership. In fact, back in chapter 28, the first 10 verses are dealing with that. He began this chapter by reminding them, Solomon doesn't have the experience. You need to guide him. He wants to make sure that he's done everything that he can to prepare the way for his son to be successful spiritually. He says the work is great because it's not about people. What we need to do is we need to respond with dedication to God's plan. If God says no to our plans, we need to be willing to say, I want to put my heart into what God is doing. I, I want to be involved in what God is doing. And we, we see several things about this. And, and I would encourage you to read these chapters, 28, 29. You can read further back and see what is taking place. But David's instructions come, and, and there are several things about it. Number one, it's purposeful. I mean, where does he get his information? He, he's giving details of how to build this temple. Well, back in chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, David gave his son Solomon the plans for all that he had by the Spirit. And then in verse 19 of chapter 28, the Lord made me understand all the works of these things. God was guiding David. Even though God said, you're not going to build, God was allowing David to be part of, of the preparation process. And David's heart was for, for God's house. Notice what he says in verse 2 of, of chapter 29. For the house of my God I have prepared with all my might. Then in verse 3, I have set my affection on the house of God. And then he said, I, over and above, I've prepared. He, he's provided from the treasury. He's done that earlier. Now he's giving of his own wealth. It wasn't just the government funds. And we have lots of people in government that are willing to give away our money to others. But they don't commit their own. David's committing his own. He's giving of his wealth. We see it was passionate. And it's interesting because this temple is not going to be referred to as David's temple. It's going to be referred to as Solomon's temple. But that wasn't how David viewed it. 
He saw it as the Lord's house. He's serving God. He's not building a name for himself. David's going to be dead before this thing is ever built, but he's paving the way for future ministry. Folks, that's what we get to do here at Tri-City. We are in this building because others paved the way for us. Some of you were involved in that. Pastor Mike shared some of those stories even at his promotion ceremony on Friday. And the blessing of that. But we have the same opportunity to do it for those who will come before us or after us if the Lord tarries. Are we doing that? That that this is Christ's church. We can plant and water, but it's the Lord who gives the increase. And we should serve as if we are in his field. David said, this isn't isn't for people, this is for the Lord. Is that your attitude toward ministry? David was serving that God would receive the glory. We, We see it was plentiful. The magnitude of David's giving here is astounding. We read over these numbers He's committing from his own resources. And and we don't know the buying power of gold and silver in that day. So so it's really difficult to accurately calculate the worth of all the material. But it was massive. We read of the talents. A talent weighed about 70 pounds. I've seen numbers just below that, just above that, kind of cutting it down the middle. It's about 70 pounds. We measure gold and silver in ounces. They're figuring it in talents. They were measuring in tons. We're looking at tons of gold and tons of silver. And and this, the generosity that's recorded here in chapter 29 is over and above what was already given back in chapter 22, verse 14. Probably there, some of it was the spoils of war that were being presented and given for this project. But, But... Let's face it, Solomon's not going to need any debt retirement offerings. There's not going to be any debt. And the generosity and the preparation that is seen here, that that he and, and David's not doing it so that Solomon can live comfortably personally. He's doing it to advance the cause of the Lord. His purpose was on ministry. We also see there was personal. Did you notice as as we read through these verses, how many times David spoke of my God? Verse 2, now for the house of my God I have prepared. Verse 3, I have set my affection on the house of my God. The latter part of verse 3, I have given to the house of my God. In verse 17, as he's praying, I know also my God that you test the heart. In fact, when he challenges Solomon, if you look back at chapter 28, verse 20, as David's encouraging his son Solomon, and we really, we we hear the echoes of, of Joshua, he says, be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not be afraid nor dismayed for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. David, David has this personal relationship with God. You know, if you're going to call other people to trust the Lord, your trust for Him needs to be evident. If you want your children to glorify God by following your path spiritually, they need to see that spiritual relationship displayed practically in your life. Values are caught much more than they're taught. And our kids are going to know if we're serving the Lord just on Sunday as ritual, yeah, we've got to go to church, or if it's a life commitment that, that lasts through the week. 
David had that commitment. Even as he's saying, the Lord God, and then he stops and says, my God will be with you. Those with a heart commitment to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness can genuinely delight in advancing his work. And they're capable of that great rejoicing. So what we see then, secondly, that your, your heart is motivated by, it, it, it motivates the example that will encourage others. Your heart-motivated service will be an example to other people. So, so David is given abundantly from his own wealth. And then he turns to the leaders. And he urges them to give. And they take up that challenge. They're joyful. They gladly accept. And, and really in verses 6 and following, we find them giving generously and joyfully. And it comes to, to verse 9, and the people rejoiced that they had offered willingly because of the loyal heart they had. They were delighted that they could give. That's why I think having a special offering is a wonderful opportunity for our church. We're not trying to do it as, uh, to guilt us into giving, but to give us that joy to prayerfully consider, Lord, what can I do? And to give sacrificially because it's right for the people in Israel to, to share in the cost of building the temple, but they delighted to do it. David provided an example. He reminded the people of, of what God was doing. What makes people be generous like that? Well, the right view of God and the right view of themselves and the right view of, of their situation. You know, it, it's worth noting that we, we read of the gold and silver and precious stones here in First Chronicles that they're giving those, those tangible assets to, to see the, the temple built. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, verse 10 and following, talks about Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church and that in wise building our works should be with gold silver and precious stones and it's not referring to the tangible assets it's referring to our sincerity and sacrifice that these would last at the judgment seat the right view of God is a response of generosity and, and the result then is a heart of praise now, I, I say that because our human tendency is to be really impressed with what they gave. You know, when you measure gold in tons, that's impressive. But notice where David reflects, turns the attention. The third thing I want us to see is that to be faithful, we to declare the splendor of God. And in verses 10 and following, David pulls back the curtain on the invisible reality that motivated this generosity it was the greatness and the goodness of God. One, one commentator made the statement that David's prayer ransacks the theological dictionary looking for terms to express God as sovereign and His care and His boundless power. Another commentator, though, they, just, they read these verses and said, well, this is where we get the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. There is so much more in this. I mean, this, this section in of, of itself is a, is a theology lesson. The first thing that we see is your giving proceeds from your view of God's greatness. And, and, and we find that in these verses, the greatness of God that is just so abundant. The, look, look at these verses. Look at verse 13. It says, Now therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you. 
Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the victory, the majesty, and all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. Yours, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. Your hand is, in your hand is all power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. Therefore, our God, we thank you and praise you for your glorious name. David is just going over and over the greatness of God, God's great power, that he is a miracle-working God, the, the power to give the glory, the beauty, the honor, the victory of God. You know, his victory over his enemies. God is never lost. He is undefeated. And he will remain so. So keep your eyes on the finish line. When we see the world crashing in around us, go to Revelation. God wins. David, David then goes to the splendor, the majesty of God, the honor, the splendor. The, it, it's the bigness of God. We, we, we teach our children the song, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. It's a very simple song with very great truth. And then David shifts to the ownership of God. All that is in heaven and earth is yours. Foundational to stewardship. God owns everything. David got it. The authority of God. Yours is the kingdom, the supremacy, you're exalted, the provision, riches and honor come from you. David says, yes, the generosity of our people is because of the generosity of our God. This is a testimony of God's greatness, not the great people. In fact, notice how David's questions in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, but who am I? And who are the people that we should be able to offer so willingly for all things come from you? And then he says, oh Lord, God, all this abundance, we've prepared for you a house, for your holy name. See, God was willing to, gave willingly, and so they could give. You know, we're developing in godliness, being like God when we delight in giving. When, when we enjoy giving to see the work of the Lord go forth, that's one reason offering is important. It's important for teaching our children. Because God is a giving God. His children, His people ought to be giving people, not greedy people. That we understand the character of God. And so in verse 15, David's highlighting the brevity of life. We're, we're pilgrims, we're aliens, we're strangers, we're just passing through. The days of our life are like a shadow. Even back then, David was investing for eternity. And what we need to understand in here is that your giving reflects your faith in God's goodness. Our view of God... Our, our personal experience and knowledge of God impacts our giving. If you have a small view of God, it's going to be very difficult for you to give. And not necessarily monetary in size, it, 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 because it, it's the sacrificial spirit. Small view of God's going to result in small gifts. Well, God, you can have these 10 minutes of my day, but the rest of the day is mine. Do we really give Him our time? Do we spend time in His Word? You know, if God has your heart, He has your, your silver, your gold, your brass, your iron, your time, your future, and your agenda. And that's what we see with David. 
And when He has your agenda, you can respond in humility when God says no to our agenda. But the fourth thing I want us to see is we need to be invested then in encouraging others to serve. We find that in, in, in the latter part of this. David's concern is that his son would serve. Look at verse 17. He says, I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in the uprightness. As for me and in uprightness of my heart, I, I have willingly offered all things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent and thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. David says, I'm providing the materials, but I can't change the heart. But it's the heart that is mentioned five times in these three verses. And another time back in verse 9, where it notes the people gave with a willing heart. So what we see is that your giving should flow from a heart dedicated to the glory of God. That that really is what motivates us. It's not guilt-motivated giving, it's the glory of God-motivated giving. And giving for the glory of God is a heart issue. It issues from the heart. True happiness doesn't come from seeking self-gratification. It comes from serving the Lord. You know, David learned that lesson the hard way. He sought to please himself. And there were painful and long-lasting consequences as a result. But he's learned that his wealth was not for personal luxury. It was for advancing the glory of God. And if you read 1 Chronicles 29 carefully and note why people give and then read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll find that Paul's teaching on giving and these principles are very similar. The same truths are presented. So do you have a loyal heart? Give him your heart. You know, the temple, Solomon's temple, without wholehearted devotion to the law, was an empty gesture. And a church building without wholehearted devotion to the Lord is an empty gathering. The hymn writer highlighted the problem we all have. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Bind my heart with an eternal goal. But even when we wander, God's grace is greater than our sin. The temple is going to be named Solomon's temple, not David's temple. Do you remember who Solomon's mother was? Bathsheba. Solomon was the fruit of David's sin. And yet here we see the grace of God, that God directs Solomon to fulfill the dream that David had, to build the house for God. And God built a house for David. Your giving should encourage the spiritual advancement of others. People today are concerned about leaving a financial heritage to their children, a, a legacy for their children, and that's a good thing. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But you know, a spiritual heritage is far more important. 
Are you striving to lay up spiritual blessings for your children, not just material ones? Are you taking steps to leave a legacy of spiritual commitment for your children and grandchildren? Will your children remember back on the pattern of life and that godly heritage? Jim Berg has just updated the updated version of his book, Changed into His Image, God's Plan for Transforming Your Life. Uh, the updated version just came out last Wednesday. I checked the preface because I, I wanted to see if they'd kept in the statement he had for his, as he wrote to his daughters. And it's there. But he said this in the preface of that book. As he's writing to his daughters, he says, I have told you before that your mother and I will probably not be able to pass on to you any kind of earthly inheritance. If we pass an inheritance on to you, it's a passion for God. And we will have given you something more valuable than silver, gold, or rubies, and more satisfying than anything a mortal can experience. The world doesn't understand leaving a godly heritage. But what are you doing to intentionally encourage the spiritual advancement of others, those closest to you, and then as a church? Now, that's that's what we're seeking to do. Are you challenging your children to do something for the Lord? Are you intentionally preparing for the spiritual success? Do we we recognize that? I was stopped as I was leaving last last week. I'd been thinking earlier, it was was just a year ago, that, that Peggy Roberts went to be with the Lord. And I, I remember it because I had to leave our men's breakfast for our missions conference to, to do the funeral. And Mark stopped me in the lobby. He said, we finally have we've finished the, closing their, their estate for his parents. He said, and they had put in their will that money was to be left both to International Baptist College and Seminary and Tri-City Baptist Church. And that money will be going to the retirement of this debt. And I thought, what a wonderful heritage. That here are, you know, I I met Peggy, we talked many times, I loved her, I never met Mr. Roberts. But both of them were laying up treasure in heaven by investing in ministry to go forward. Folks, we all have that opportunity. Your personal adoration for God will cause you to give for His glory. And in doing so, then it will encourage others to give also that we would be found faithful. And whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And in giving faithfully, encourage others to live faithfully also. Is that your investment this morning? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior that you can have that relationship? And if you have, are you a giving person like your Heavenly Father is a giving Father? Let's look to the Lord.